Well, good morning to you. You all right? Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, my name is Steve. Also one of the pastors here, one of the uh, several bald ones. So we're glad that you chose this morning to join us. Uh, I'm bald by choice. Uh, I'd just like to let that be known. All right, you got a Bible? Go ahead and grab it. Turn to John chapter 1. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about here this morning, just so you're aware. John chapter 1 is where we're going to be. If you were with us last week, we began our Advent series taking a look at the theology of Christmas out of the book of John. And we said last week that the book of John opens uh, with eternity in mind. The other synoptic writers, synoptic means uh, same view, sin, optics, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all synoptic. They look at uh, Jesus in a particular way. John looks further back in the story of creation. He takes you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And in fact, John chapter 1 in the first few verses goes even further than that, that he begins with the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So that's where John begins his story. And we saw in those first five verses uh, the Word's relationship to God, the Word's relationship to creation, and then the Word's relationship to mankind. And we were moving in John's uh, scope and in his view and in his vision from all of eternity uh, in God to creation and then to mankind. And we ended last week saying that the, uh, the Word was the light of life and the light of mankind. And that's, that's really, that's, uh, those are five verses that are really, really full of theology. Well, today we're going to move forward and John's going to keep building his prologue. Uh, what you have in really the first three or four paragraphs of John chapter one is a really an introduction to all of what John is going to show you in his gospel. And uh, today, as, as we looked at eternity last week, we began John's uh, story within the beginning, that it locked us into thinking about time, about the intersection between God and creation, and specifically the intersection between God and man. Well, this week we're going to have those intersections happen. Uh, what you're going to see very simply in these two little bitty paragraphs is you're going to see the witness to the light, and you're going to see the world. And both of them are going to respond to the light differently. The witness is going to prepare the way of the Lord, and we're going to look at John the Baptist and his story. Uh, John the Baptist is a very intriguing biblical character. He's got a lot in common with Jesus. Uh, he's an individual who is uh, sent from God. He's an individual who's named by the angel. He's a miraculous birth. He lives his entire life for the glory of somebody else. Uh, that he's on a descent, like Jesus is on a descent in Philippians chapter 2, who though in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of the servant. That John is totally sold out to the purposes of God. And that's what you're going to see in the first few verses here. And then you're going to see the world. Uh, we've been waiting to see, you've kind of hinted at it in John chapter 1 verse 5, where the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, you're going to see the real problem that the world has when the light shows up. What is the issue that God has to enter into humanity for? What has he come to fix? And all of that is going to be revealed here in John's prologue. And then you're going to get verses 12 and 13 in, this, in these paragraphs that will show you. They're kind of the most poignant verses in John's prologue. And it will show you perhaps the greatest Christmas promise there is. That's what we'll see. 
All right, so kind of preparation, the problem, and the promise. Those note takers who are out there, you with me? You got a, you got a way we're going to figure it out, okay? Let's pray together and see what God would say to us here through his word. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your church. Thank you for all of those who are watching online and participating who are socially distanced at this time. We pray that uh, your word uh, would find room in our hearts that we would respond here today with faith and hope and joy with what Jesus has done, with what the incarnation means for sinful men and women who are made in your image but who are darkened to the knowledge of God. What hope this Christmas season is as the divine invades the mundane. So, Father, for those of us who are in this room who need to be reminded of your work and your purposes and your plan and your promises and that Jesus coming into the world, the word becoming flesh, would give us new joy and would refresh us here this morning. For all of those who are discouraged and despairing and uncertain here today, would you strike the match and create faith in their heart yet again over the truth of your word and what you have done in Jesus Christ? So, Father, bless us as we read and study and think here this morning. We give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, let's look here at this witness. Take a look at John. Y'all there in John 1? Say, yeah, all right, three of you are not. Good. Wave a hand. Just start clapping. I just said we have to start clapping, right? We're all in John. Okay, good. John 1, that's the participation portion of our sermon right there. John chapter 1. Take a look at verse 6. Now, you had these broad categories in one, uh, chapter 1, 1 to 5, right? God, creation, light, dark. Well, now you have just a single individual. John chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man. That's it. That's your introduction to John. You don't even get his name so much as you get the beginning of what, who John is going to be. That he's going to be, in all the things that I said he was similar to Jesus, he's not Jesus, right? He's merely a preparatory figure for who Jesus is. And it's as if we started with divinity and now we get to the human and we say there was a man who was sent from God. Now, John has a very important role, doesn't he? That word sent is what's used of the apostles, and it's actually a theme that continues throughout the book of John, that John the Baptist is sent... Uh, God, the Father, sends Jesus the Son. And you know how the book of John ends in John chapter 20? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending who? I'm sending you. So that this sending theme begins here, is explained through the book of John, and by the time we end the book of John, you have individuals who are now commissioned and sent, as Jesus does with the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? Go. And make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Well, the beginning of John's story is really in the purposes of God. As I said, John has a miraculous birth on the level of the Abraham and Isaac story, of the Jacob and Esau story, of the Hannah and Elkanah bringing Samuel into the world. So when John uh, is sent by God, John fulfills at least three Old Testament passages. Do you have a, a cross-reference in John there that he was sent? You might have a cross-reference in Malachi chapter 3. There's three major Old Testament prophecies that talk about John the Baptist. Isaiah 40, that talk about uh, the hills and the mountains being, uh, and a way being made for God to come. 
Malachi chapter 3, which is what you probably have there, that talks in Malachi 3 about, behold, I send my messenger ahead. And this is the idea here, that John the Baptist is sent. He's purposed. He's designed. He's uh, intersecting history at a very particular time. Paul says in the book of Galatians that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That time was full, it was pregnant, it was ready for the Christ to come. And before the Christ comes, you've got John the Baptist, who is sent. The third reference to to John is Malachi chapter 4. Behold, Elijah is going, I'm going to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So those three major prophecies build out our understanding of John the Baptist. John the Baptist and his role and his calling is not something he takes to himself. It's something that he is called to inhabit and called to live and walk in according to God's purposes and God's time. That's important for us as we understand John. John doesn't take ministry to himself. Rather, it's given to him by God. He's called by God to do something very specific in God's purpose and God's plan. Now, There was a man. You don't even get his name yet. You just get his mission, don't you? Or really the mandate that God gives to him. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, if you've read the other gospel accounts, you know that that is not just an arbitrary designation. John is born to two individuals, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah gets the opportunity to go into the temple and burn incense. While he's burning incense, the angel Gabriel shows up and says, Zechariah, we've heard your prayers. You and your wife, who've been barren your entire life, are going to have a son. Zechariah can't believe it, literally. And he gets struck mute all the way up until the time that the son is born. And everybody is walking around, talking to Zechariah, saying, we've got to name him Zechariah Jr., because that's your side of the family. That's where he's come from. He's the only son that you've got. He's got to be Zechariah Jr. Zechariah says, no, his name is going to be John. You know what John's name means? Gift of God. God is gracious, other translations say. What a great name to be the forerunner of the Messiah, isn't it? To be the one whose name means the very gift of God, and he's going to point to the very gift of God, isn't he? Well, that's John's story. John's naming, even, is given now by the angel. Zechariah recognizes what we read is Zechariah's prophecy here this morning, that you will go before as a prophet of the Most High to give light to the people. So John is your very last Old Testament prophet, the one who is now going to point toward the individual who will fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies of who he is, all right? There's a man sent from God whose name was John. Take a look at verse 7. He came as a witness. Now, what, how John, how is John usually called? John the what? John the Baptist, isn't he? Why doesn't it say he comes as the baptizer? We always call him John the Baptist. John, the writer of this gospel, seems to say he's got another purpose, that his baptism is the means And you're going to see what the ends are in a minute. But John recognizes his ministry not only as preparatory, but being informed by God to declare truth. That's what a witness does, right? A witness doesn't conjure truth. A witness doesn't create truth. A witness merely communicates what he sees and what he hears. This is what the disciples are disciplined for by the Pharisees. When the Pharisees say to them in Acts chapter 4, you can no longer speak and preach in the name of Jesus. And they say... 
You decide whether it's better for us to obey you or to obey God, because we can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're good witnesses. They're called in Matthew 28 to be witnesses. Here's John's role. John's called to be a witness. And it's interesting, in John's ministry, John is called to do something. He's called to come and give a baptism of repentance. But when Jesus comes on the scene, John says something very interesting. John says, I did myself did not know who he is. But so that he would be revealed to Israel, I came baptizing. So John is called to a mission, called to a obedience activity that is darkened until the moment that God reveals Jesus. All he knows is that he's the one who's to prepare the way of the Lord. So he comes as a witness, to bear witness about the light. Now, what's the end of John's ministry here? Look at the remainder of the verse in verse 7. Here's the end of his ministry, that all might believe through him. So John recognizes in in his ministry calling that his entire ministry calling is meant to point to somebody else. His entire ministry purpose, the reason God has put John on this earth is for the end of people believing in Jesus. Now, could I do some preaching and teaching here on the purpose of Christians in this world? Could we have a conversation about why God has left you here? Are there lessons for us to learn from the John the baptizer about ways in which we can reorder our lives and begin to order the ways that we think and act and speak and lead and serve in all of those ways that other people might be drawn and other people might understand and other people might believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Well, that's the purpose of John's entire ministry. John's a fascinating character study. Now, I don't know why John does this. John is a little bit redundant. You get the fact that John is a man. You get the fact that John is sent. You get the fact that John is a witness. But look at verse 8. He was not the light. Why does John put that there? What is the point of John making sure that you recognize that John is not, I know it's hard, John the writer of the gospel and John the Baptist. Which one am I talking about? I don't know. He's not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, he talks about his ministry and what he's called to and uh, how he's called to serve and to teach the gospel and, and, and push the gospel message forward. And he says, uh, this is 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, But Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. Paul carries the same kind of idea that is resident in John the Baptist. He understands that his ministry is about pointing and looking and directing people's attention to somebody else. Let me illustrate it. We went out walking last night since it gets dark at like 3.30 in the afternoon now, we can take the kids out for, for a little bit and look at Christmas lights. So we're all walking uh, out looking at Christmas lights, and we're all just observing and looking. You bring a flashlight just in case, you know, people don't pick up after their dogs, and you have, my kids are kind of like, you got to kind of like run around my kids like a sheepdog to make sure that, you know, they're all kind of staying 
where they need to. Uh, and you bring a flashlight to do that just in case, right? So we're going through the night and we're flat, using the flashlight and that's fun and the kids all like that looking at all things. But uh, my kids like to use flashlights uh, at the totally inappropriate times, right? And they burn all the batteries out so that often my only job in the house with flashlights is to change the batteries because they're all dead or they're left on and in a drawer. Uh, why they do that, I don't know. But we'll never have a flashlight when we need it. If there's a hurricane and we need a flashlight, I guarantee I'll be looking for batteries to change them in the flashlights. But they use flashlights when the sun is out. And you don't need to use flashlights when the sun is out, right? Because the point of using a flashlight is completely irrelevant when the sun is out. And what John is doing is making sure that his ministry isn't beaming the flashlight on himself He's beaming the flashlight on somebody else. Let me illustrate it a different way. John's ministry is a mirror. And his job in ministry as a mirror is to reflect the light of the sun. If you were up here, you could see the spotlights that are on me and that are in my eyes. And his job as a mirror is to take the light of heaven and direct it so that people can see and understand and apprehend the light. You with me? Christian, that is your job in this life. The reason God has left you here is to be a mirror for the light of life. So that you would see it and you would reflect it to the world. You know what the worst use of a mirror is? Is pointing a mirror at a mirror. What happens when you point a mirror at a mirror? You have infinite reflection on things that are he merely here. It's totally worthless. And my concern for us, my concern for me, my concern for you, as we are Christians in this city for however long God has given us, is that we would understand our ministry and our mission as reflecting and demonstrating and directing people, just like John does, to the person and works and wonder of Jesus Christ. You with me? That's good ministry. And a lot of times for us, I get that, listen, I, I struggle with this as much as you do, is that a lot of times we can make ministry about reflecting ourselves to others, can't we? That we take ministry and slowly make sure that people know how wise I am and how all the answers I have and how important I am and how I'm the one who can give them wisdom and insight. But the remarkable thing about John's ministry is John's ministry can give light to no one. Right? All John can do is be a witness to the light. That's why John, the writer of the gospel, begins, within him was life, the light of men. There's one source of light. Right? And we don't have it. Our job is to point to and to reflect and uh, point to Jesus, who is the true light. Now, he wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John, you know, if you track John's ministry, the reason John the uh, Apostle writes this is that when the Pharisees send individuals to come and to talk to John the Baptist, they ask him three different questions Are you the prophet? And he says, no, I'm not the prophet. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not any of those people. 
I'm the one who's here to prepare the way of the Lord. Look real quick. Turn just to John chapter 3, just for a minute. Where you are, just turn one page over. Unless you have one of those large print Bibles. You might need two. But look at here. Look at John chapter 3. John, uh, even in his preparatory ministry, has a great view on what God has called him to do. He's incredibly humble. It's not that he's a man who doesn't struggle with believing whether or not Jesus is who he says. He has a moment in his ministry where he goes, am I, Jesus, are you the one we, are, we expected? Or am I looking for somebody else? Did I prepare the way for somebody else? But in John chapter 3, look at what uh, verse 25, so John three twenty-five. a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. And all are going to him. John, your baptism ministry of success and recognition and applause, you're losing followers, John. This is a major problem. Verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. you believe that? Do you believe that all you have in terms of your ministry, your influence, your gifts, your talents, your abilities, all of those things have been given to you from heaven for a season? John says, I recognize that. I recognize my entire ministry calling. The fact that God has called me from the womb is a gift. The ministry opportunities I have are gifts. The ministry success that I have is a gift. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. That's a great verse for you to memorize. Because listen, no matter, no matter who you are, we all have ambitions for success in our lives, don't we? We are all hoping that life gets better as we journey in this world. That life somehow would move up and to the right. And John says, I am not the Christ. You are not the light of your spouse's life. Sorry. You are not the light of your children's life. You are not the source. You're merely a mirror. You're meant to live your life in such a way that you order your thoughts, your affections, your desires, your dreams, your ambitions in such a way that you might have an opportunity to be used of God in somebody else's life. That's what it means to be a Christian. You with me? That's why John begins his gospel with creation and what it means to be a Christian on this planet. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I am sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. One of the greatest blessings of being a Christian is having the opportunity to minister to somebody else that their walk with Jesus develops, that they get introduced to the light of life. Amen? Isn't that fun? When you get a chance, when somebody is suffering or somebody's experiencing difficulty for you to be the conduit between, can I introduce you to something true about who Jesus is that pertains to this situation right now? And listen, I'm not the light of life. Jesus is. 
Can I help you understand more about who he is? What better theme of discipleship is there than that? Isn't that right? That's what John sees. John rightly understands his ministry calling. Is that eventually, 1 Corinthians 15, that says, uh, he must reign until God has put all his enemies under his feet so that God would be all in all. All of your influence, all of your dreams, and all of your ambitions are eventually going to come to an end, and God is going to reclaim all of creation so that God would be all in all to the glory of God, right? And the greatest, wisest thing that you can do is reorient your life here with how much ever time God has given you so that you would serve the purposes of God. See, Christmas is the invasion of the divine. When Jesus comes and says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, align your life according to the one who has all authority, right? Go back to John. So, that's John the Baptist, pretty good, right? You with me? That's the witness. John's about to encounter something in his ministry. Jesus is about to encounter something in his ministry. And what John, the writer of the gospel, is about to do is allow you to see the setting. He's given you the characters, right? He's given you light, dark, God, creation, mankind, a single man, a voice crying in the wilderness, and now he's going to paint the picture of the setting. What kind of world is John the Baptist and the light of life going to encounter as they are incarnated? Well, let's take a look. Here's the world. Take a look at verse 9. The true light. Now we're shifting back to uh, John 1, 1 to 5. We've given you a little, little break to give you the preparation And now we're going to look at the problem in the world. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now we're back in 1 verse 5. Now watch the incarnation happen. Look at verse 10. He was in the world. Did you miss it? All the angels singing. All the story of Herod. All of that, John just jumps right over. He's coming. He's in the world. Why does John do that? The other gospel writers capture that idea, but John is more concerned with these categories. He's making sure as he builds your theology of Christmas that he heightens the stakes. He shows you what the setting is so that you would understand the problem of Christmas, the problem that the incarnation has come to solve. And he skips it real quick. The true light, which was, gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The gives light to everyone is, is the idea of objective revelation, without distinction. That when the light is on in the room, everybody has to deal with that reality. When the true light that comes from heaven incarnates into the world, the one through whom and for whom all things are created, everybody, no matter uh, what background you come from, no matter what worldly distinctions there are, everyone is going to have to reckon with the light. Everyone is going to have to make a decision about the light. In fact, John's entire gospel is built like this. The main issue in John's gospel 
is believing and receiving that Jesus is who he says he is. So the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. When Jesus used that, that word true, it's not true as opposed to false. It's genuine as opposed to, well, that's not really a good way to put it. Just think of it in terms of genuine. Jesus uses it throughout the book of John to talk about, in John 4, he talks about the woman at the well. And he says there are true worshipers, which means there are insufficient and there are fully revealed worshipers, right? Worshipers the Father is seeking to worship in spirit and in truth. In John chapter 6, Jesus talks about being the true bread from heaven. That Moses gave you manna in the desert, but Christ comes down as the true bread. In... Um, John 15, what Steve taught to us a couple weeks ago, Jesus talks about being the true vine. He's the real deal. So he's not light as in Genesis chapter 1, created light, but he's the essence and the fulfillment of all that light means. And everybody's going to have to deal with it. Okay? Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through them, through him, sorry. And the world was made through him. That's what we saw from Colossians 1 and in our prologue last week. All of creation comes through the word of God. Yet, the world did not know him. That verse is so tragic. Do you feel the tragedy of that verse? That the one who made it all incarnates and steps into the created order and the world is in this state of sin-induced amnesia it does not recognize him the world in its nature cannot understand that the creator is here when you watch jesus's miracles you watch how the wind and the waves respond to jesus right how do they respond he says, peace be still, and everything stops. He makes fish eat coins that they can uh, then be caught by the apostle, and Peter can pay taxes. Demons fall at his feet. And the disciples and the people who follow him are always confused. They don't quite get it. They don't understand. They can't seem to put it together, can they? Uh, the world in, John, in John's gospel uh, is essentially darkened. Let me give you some of the, here's some of the things that uh, the world has a problem with when it comes to Jesus. When Jesus talks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, this is judgment, light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. It's one of the main important verses that Jesus talks about to talk about the, uh, or to explain the, the disordered love problem that we have, that we by nature love the darkness. In John 7, he talks, about, talks to his disciples. He said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. At the end of Jesus' ministry in John 14, he says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go. That the world is darkened to the person of Christ. The world cannot apprehend and understand who Jesus is. 
See, all creation, Paul says in Romans that all creation groans and eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God, the sons and daughters of God, that all creation is, is bound under the curse. And the thing that will free it is the final consummation of Christ returning and fixing it all and creating the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And he begins that by calling people to himself. See, the invasion of Christ into the world, the incarnation of God into humanity is fixing the darkness problem that we all have. Isn't that good news? Isn't that great? That God loves us enough to turn on the lights. Now, uh, that's your issue with the world. The world is darkened. The world is in control, uh, Paul says, by the prince of the power of the air. The other problem is in verse 11. Take a look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Um, the entire Old Testament looks forward to the Messiah, does it not? It looks forward to the one who will be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And... Uh, when it does that, your entire Old Testament arc is looking forward to the incarnation. And one of the key tensions in the drama of Christ being incarnate is that Christ comes to the Jews. And he comes to the Jews, his own people, who Exodus 19 says, uh, Exodus 19, God takes the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, and says, You alone I have known among all the families of the earth, and you will be my treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. And the tension, the drama that happens in the Gospels is that the nation of Israel rejects their Messiah. And this is how John puts it. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. From Genesis chapter 3 to Malachi 4, everybody's looking and leaning and asking, when is the Messiah coming? And the tragedy is that when he comes, he's rejected by his own people. So you've got uh, the world that lies in darkness. You've got his people who've been waiting and longing and looking for the Messiah who do not receive him. And now you have the, probably the two most important verses in all of John's prologue that carry the greatest promise for the world. Look at verse 12. It turns on a contrast word. What's the contrast word? But there's about to be a contrast to a world that is uh, laying in darkness, and there's about to be a contrast to the most, um, for lack of a better term, tragic refusals and rejections of God's covenant people. But there's hope. But there's a change. To a few, but who? But to, say all, all. The scope of Christmas is over all of creation, over all of mankind, to every man, to every woman, all over this planet, the promise begins as broad of a scope as you can give it. You find it here in John. 
to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. There's two pieces there. Theologians typically break faith down into three component parts. There's content, there's agreeing, agreeing with that content, that that content is in fact true and objective and valid, and then there's faith. There's putting trust that, that content is what it says. John boils them down really to two. The first one is to receive, which means I open my hands and receive the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done for me. Did the Jews do that? They didn't do that. They rejected. They did not receive him. The very people who should have received him did not receive him. And second, you have the idea of content. So you have response and content to those who believed in his name. Throughout the New Testament, the idea of his name is the biblical revelation of who Jesus is. That Jesus is bound, in a sense, by his character and the truth that allows you to put your trust in who Jesus is and what he has done. To receive the work that he has done for you by believing that he is who he says he is. That's faith. That I open my hands and receive that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is. His entire Gospel of John points to his words and his work that validate who he is. John closes his Gospel saying, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's authority and ability. You know, we said this a few weeks ago when we were finishing the series in the, in the churches of Revelation. And we got to the, this church at Philadelphia. That's the church that has everything. And Jesus is on the outside and he's knocking, asking to come in. And he promises royalty to that church. He promises intimacy to that church. He promises rule and reign to the church. And what John says here is that in Jesus, by believing and receiving who he is and what he has done, you are given the right to become children of God. You have the audacity to say, my sins are forgiven, he knows my name, and I am loved by the God of heaven and earth. You ever feel like that's not the case? Do you return again and run to the truth of the name of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you? The new status that he has given to you who were darkened in your trespasses and sins? Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Isn't that the good news of the church? Isn't that the good news of the Christian? that you can find forgiveness and new life. You can now have the authority to call God Father. The Gospels close with Jesus talking to Mary Magdalene saying, do not cling to me, for I am ascending to my God and to your God, to my Father and to your Father. What a promise. Now, John finishes in this last verse with three different ways that people, I think, have a tendency to think that they have the right to be children of God. Listen, if you go out into your workplace or into your family and you begin telling people you have no right to call God as Father, you are not going to be a popular individual, just a guess. You and God are not on good terms right now. Merry Christmas. And what John does is make sure that you know the new birth that Jesus wins for you by you believing and receiving what he has done for you has no other 
competition. Look at these three, there's three ways. <clears throat> he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Now Jesus is going to expand this in John 3 when he talks to Nicodemus, right? He's going to talk about the new birth. But here he says they were born, not of blood. What does that mean? You know, later on in uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus talks to the Jews, and the Jews say, well, we have Abraham as our father. We come from a heritage and a long line of people who have walked with God. We're a part, Jesus, of the covenant people of God. You don't understand what good standing we have, how much God loves us, how we're his, they would probably even quote Exodus 19, we're his treasured possession of all the people on earth. And John just said to all who believed him, who received him, he gave the right to become children of God, not of blood. Which means it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter uh, where you come from or where you were born or what your country of origin is. None of that earns you a right to become a part of God's family. We believe that? That's important, right? That no racism or white pride or black pride or Latino pride or any of those things gains us a foot at the table when it comes to being made right with God. It's only the belief and receiving in what Jesus has done for us. It crushes any sense of ethnic superiority. Not of blood. You don't get there because you're some ethnically protected class that somehow makes it in to the family of God. That's not how you get in. Number two, nor of the will of the flesh. Now, when you read the will of the flesh, maybe you were with us over the summer where we looked at the book of Galatians. The flesh is typically used in Paul's writings to capture two big ideas, sinful flesh and the desires of the heart that is warped by sin or this desire to uh, attain to some sense of law righteousness. But that's not how John uses flesh in his gospel. When John uses the term, he uses it essentially to re refer to things that are natural and things that are supernatural. So if there is no sense in the gospel of Jesus Christ of any kind of ethnic superiority, there certainly must be a place for those people who have tried real hard or the people who have really willed themselves to do everything that they can in their life and on this earth to make sure that they are doing things pleasing to God. John detonates this idea of thinking that you can make it to heaven by things that you do on earth. By doing merely natural things on this planet that is infected by sin and darkness that somehow you think you can earn yourself at the table of the family of God. John says it's not in natural man to make their way to heaven. It's not in natural man for them to be welcomed into God's family. You can't get there that way. That won't take you there. So no sense of ethnic superiority, no sense that what you will and what you desire in your entire time on earth in the ways that you perform for God will guarantee that you become a child of God. What's the third way that's the attempt? The NIV translates this a little bit differently. Look at the third one, the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. The NIV translates it the will of a husband. In a sense that you were brought into, let me make this very clear with a biology lesson, you were brought into this world naturally by the will of two people, right? 
that they procreated and created now a new and living natural person. And essentially, John is saying this. You can't become a child of God because of somebody else's decision. God has no grandkids in any generation. A lot of times as we hear, interview people and we to hear their testimony, some people who come into our church and share the testimony of how they came to faith, they'll talk about the story of how they grew up in a Christian home, which is a beautiful blessing. My children are growing up in a Christian home. Those are the kind of kids that God has given me, but I recognize that my children need to know their Savior. I don't bring them into this world and recognize that they are now children of God, which is why our prayer and our concern for all of the people that are in my home is that they would know and love and serve the light of the world. Because they don't get in to heaven because their dad's a pastor. They don't get into heaven because we had a lot of kids. They get into heaven by believing and receiving what Jesus has done for them. And what they are given is the right to become children of God. It's not by anybody else's decision. It's not because you have some sort of ethnicity that gets you a, a seat at the table. And it's not anything you can do in your natural man ability. But the promise of Christmas is Jesus. And the promise of Christmas is that the light of the world that gives light to everyone can be believed upon and received. And you can now have the right you can now have the intimacy and the inheritance of a child of God. Now, that's some pretty good theology, if you ask me. That's a pretty good Christmas message, amen? That we believe that by receiving him and believing his name that we have life and that we are now brought into the family of God. And our goal, listen, our goal and our hope as a church is that we would be men and women who, just like John the Baptist, can allow our ministry ambition to be second to people believing in the light of life. Amen? Right? Let's do that. Let's open our hands to the ambition that we typically have and go, God, how would you use me in somebody else's life that they might come to a knowledge, a saving faith of believing in you and receiving what you have done for them? That our church would be a people filled with mirrors that are always trying to point people, to encourage people, to challenge people with the truth of who Jesus is so that their eyes would not be on ourselves, but their eyes would be on Christ. See, John models for us good ministry. That's my heart for you. That's my heart for me in this church is that we would be a church that would reflect the light that has been given for all people and that they would come to a saving knowledge of who he is and what he has done for them. And that's the theology and the message of Christmas. That's our hope. That's our preaching. That's our counseling. That's our encouraging is that God might use you this season, that God might use you in 2021, whatever 2021 brings to be a blessing in somebody else's life, for them to go deeper with Jesus, for them to see Jesus for the first time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
what good news this is. Father, for those who are in this room who have a tendency, like myself, to be self-referential in our ministry, or who are tempted to make ministry about themselves or make their Christian life about themselves, would you free us from that self-focus that we would believe that we don't have anything but what we have received from heaven and that you would pour us out and use us for your purposes. That we would do all we can to point people to the light of life. That we would be quick to acknowledge that we are not the light, we are not the Christ, we are not the hope of the world. But he has come. That he is here and that we have the great honor of pointing people to the person and work of Jesus, who promises the very intimacy and joy of stepping into a relationship where men and women can call you God their Father. We thank you for Jesus and what he has done for us to open the pathway to new life and new relationship, to conquer the darkness that is in all of our hearts and our souls, and to be the glory of this Christmas season. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.